Howdy folks, this is Mark Davis coming at you from My Grand Rounds. I'm going to jump right into the next topic, which is shock. Shock is defined as a life-threatening state of cellular and tissue hypoxia due to either reduced oxygen delivery, increased oxygen consumption, inadequate oxygen utilization, or a combination of these processes. The effects of shock are initially reversible, but rapidly become irreversible, resulting in multi-organ failure and death. When a patient presents with undifferentiated shock, it is important that the clinician immediately initiate therapy while rapidly identifying the etiology so that definitive therapy can be administered to reverse shock and prevent multi-organ failure and death. Let's talk about the clinical manifestations of shock. Hypotension. Patients may initially be normotensive or hypertensive. Hypotension need not be present to diagnose shock. Not all with hypotension are in shock. Some patients with hypotension may have chronic hypotension, drug-induced hypotension, autonomic dysfunction leading to hypotension, vasovagal syncope, and peripheral vascular disease. Tachycardia is also a clinical manifestation of shock. Compared with older patients, younger patients develop severe tachycardia prior to becoming hypotensive late in the course of shock. Oliguria is yet another clinical manifestation of shock and may be due to shunting of glomerular blood flow to other vital organs, as well as direct renal injury, secondary to medications, true volume depletion from hemorrhage, vomiting, and diarrhea. Altered mentation is also a clinical manifestation of shock. Agitation usually precedes confusion or delirium followed by obtundation or coma. This may be due to inadequate CNS perfusion as well as metabolic encephalopathy. Tachypnea may also be a clinical manifestation of shock along with cool, clammy, and cyanotic skin secondary to compensatory peripheral vasoconstriction that redirects blood centrally to maintain coronary, cerebral, and splanchnic flow. Metabolic acidosis is also a clinical manifestation of shock. Although it is not specific to shock, it may be seen due to acute kidney injury or toxin ingestion. Another clinical manifestation of shock may be hyperlactatemia, either alone or with concomitant metabolic acidosis. The astute clinician must always be on the lookout for and avoid missing clinical features related to the underlying etiology of shock. Let us now compartmentalize the differential diagnosis for shock into four distinct categories. The first 
being hypovolemic shock. Due to reduced intravascular volume, i.e. reduced preload, which in turn reduces cardiac output. Hypovolemic shock may be due to hemorrhage in light of trauma, GI bleed, retroperitoneal bleed, intraoperative and postoperative bleeding, ruptured AAA or ruptured left ventricular aneurysm, aortic enteric fistula, or hemorrhagic pancreatitis. Hemorrhage may also be iatrogenic due to inadvertent biopsy of an AVM or a severed artery during procedures. Tumor or abscess erosion into major vessels and postpartum hemorrhage may also lead to hypovolemic shock. Uterine or vaginal hemorrhage due to infection as well as tumors and lacerations as well as ruptured hematoma may lead to hypovolemic shock. What about non-hemorrhagic causes of hypovolemic shock? GI losses would be the most common, such as diarrhea, vomiting, and external drainage. Integumentary losses, such as heat stroke, burns, severe dermatologic conditions, including Stevens-Johnson syndrome, may also lead to hypovolemic shock. Renal losses may also lead to hypovolemic shock, such as excessive drug-induced or osmotic diuresis, as well as salt-wasting nephropathies and hypoaldosteronism. Third spacing may also lead to hypovolemic shock, postoperative and trauma third spacing, as well as intestinal obstruction causing third spacing, crush injury, pancreatitis, and cirrhosis. Let's move on to the next category within the differential diagnosis for shock, which is cardiogenic shock. Cardiogenic shock is due to intracardiac causes of primary pump failure that results in reduced cardiac output. Cardiomyopathic causes of cardiogenic shock include myocardial infarction, left and or right ventricular infarction, acute exacerbation of heart failure in light of cardiomyopathy, stunned myocardium following cardiac arrest, prolonged ischemia or cardiopulmonary bypass, myocardial depression due to advanced septic or neurogenic shock, lactic acidosis, and myocarditis. Arrhythmic causes of cardiogenic shock may include both atrial and ventricular arrhythmias, which may induce hypotension, contributing to states of shock, such as sustained ventricular tachycardia and complete heart block. If cardiac output is absent, secondary to the underlying rhythm, such as pulseless ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, patients present in cardiac arrest. Mechanical causes of cardiogenic shock include severe aortic 
or mitral insufficiency, acute valvular defects due to rupture of a papillary muscle or chordae tendine, retrograde dissection of the ascending aorta into the aortic valve ring, abscess of the aortic valve ring, severe ventricular septal defect or acute rupture of the intraventricular septum, atrial myxomas, a ruptured ventricular free wall aneurysm which reduces cardiac output and may also present with features of obstructive shock when bleeding is contained by the pericardial sac or catastrophic hemorrhagic shock when the pericardial sac is breached and hemorrhage is ongoing. Critical aortic stenosis or mitral stenosis rarely present with cardiogenic shock. However, critical aortic stenosis or mitral stenosis may contribute to hypotension and shock from other causes such as sepsis and hypovolemia. Let's move on to our third category in the differential diagnosis of shock, which is distributive shock. Distributive shock is secondary to severe peripheral vasodilatation or vasodilatory shock. Sepsis is one of the leading causes of distributive shock, and the mortality among patients with sepsis is 40 to 50%. SIRS is yet another cause of distributive shock. SIRS is profound inflammation in response to an underlying illness. SIRS may be secondary to infectious or non-infectious etiologies. Non-infectious etiologies include pancreatitis, burns, hypoperfusion in light of trauma, significant blunt trauma and crush injury, amniotic fluid embolism, air embolism, idiopathic systemic capillary leak syndrome, post-cardiac arrest syndrome following return of spontaneous circulation after cardiac arrest, MI, or cardiopulmonary bypass. Neurogenic shock is another form of distributive shock. Hypotension or overt shock may be seen in patients with severe traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury. Interruption of autonomic pathways causing decreased vascular resistance and altered vagal tone will lead to neurogenic shock, hence distributive shock. Hypovolemia due to blood loss and myocardial depression may contribute to neurogenic shock. Anaphylactic shock is another cause of distributive shock. Severe IgE-mediated allergic reactions such as insect stings, food, and drugs may lead to anaphylaxis. Drug and toxin-induced shock is another cause of distributive shock. This causes a shock or SIRS-like syndrome. Long-acting narcotics may cause drug-induced shock, snake bites, 
insect bites, scorpion and venomation, and various spider bites may lead to toxin-induced shock. Transfusion reactions may also lead to distributive shock. Heavy metal poisoning, such as arsenic, iron, and thallium may induce distributive shock. Infections associated with toxic shock syndrome, such as streptococcus and Escherichia species, may also lead to distributive shock. Cyanide and carbon monoxide causes shock from mitochondrial dysfunction, diminishing ATP production via the electron transport chain and cell death ensues, thus leading to distributive shock. Endocrine shock is yet another cause of distributive shock. Addisonian crisis, which is adrenal failure secondary to mineralocorticoid deficiency, and myxedema may be associated with hypotension and states of distributive shock. Mineralocorticoid deficiency leads to vasodilatation in light of altered vascular tone and aldosterone deficiency-mediated hypovolemia. Myxedema may also cause distributive shock. Thyroid hormone plays a role in blood pressure homeostasis. Exact mechanism of vasodilatation due to myxedema is unclear. Concurrent myocardial depression or pericardial effusions likely contribute to hypotension and shock in this population. Patients with thyrotoxicosis develop high output cardiac failure and do not develop shock per se. However, with progression, the patient may develop left ventricular systolic dysfunction and or tachyarrhythmias, leading to hypotension. And finally, let's move on to the fourth category in the differential diagnosis of shock. This would be obstructive shock. Obstructive shock is mostly due to extracardiac causes of primary cardiac failure. It's often associated with poor right ventricular output. Pulmonary vascular causes, pulmonary embolism, and or severe pulmonary hypertension are common. The RV fails secondary to the inability to generate enough pressure to overcome the profoundly high pulmonary vascular resistance associated with pulmonary embolism or pulmonary hypertension. Hemodynamic collapse in light of pulmonary embolism is traditionally attributed to mechanical obstruction. Pulmonary vasoconstriction mediated by vasoactive mediators such as serotonin and thromboxane also contribute to the pathophysiology. Patients with severe stenosis or with acute obstruction of the pulmonary or tricuspid valve may also fall into this category. Acute right heart syndrome may be due to an MI localizing to the right ventricle. Massive volume overload may also cause acute right heart syndrome. 
hypoxemic vasoconstriction resulting in acute pulmonary hypertension may lead to acute right heart syndrome and obstructive shock. Ischemia, volume overload, or hypoxia should be avoided in patients with pre-existing pulmonary hypertension and right ventricular dysfunction. For this may result in acute on chronic right ventricular dysfunction resulting in cardiovascular collapse. Let's talk about some mechanical causes of obstructive shock. Mechanical causes present as hypovolemic shock due to decreased preload rather than primary cardiac failure. This may be due to a tension pneumothorax, pericardial tamponade, constrictive pericarditis, restrictive cardiomyopathy, abdominal compartment syndrome. Abdominal compartment syndrome impairs cardiovascular function. It reduces venous return and impairs myocardial contractility. Primary acute abdominal compartment syndrome develops in patients with an intra-abdominal injury. Secondary abdominal compartment syndrome is frequently the result of massive volume resuscitation. The astute clinician must always be on the lookout for combined forms of shock. Let's talk about the management of shock. Establish and maintain ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation. Establish two large-bore peripheral IVs. Consider hemodynamic monitoring via a CVC, an arterial line, a PA catheter, and also performing an echocardiogram. Pulmonary arterial catheterization has never been shown to improve patient important outcomes. Routine insertion of Swan-Gans catheters has fallen out of favor. However, when the diagnosis or the type of shock remains undetermined or mixed, hemodynamic measurements obtained by the pulmonary artery catheter may be helpful. Fluid resuscitation should be performed utilizing defined boluses, such as 500 ml to 1 liter. Repeat until blood pressure and tissue perfusion are acceptable, pulmonary edema or intra-abdominal hypertension ensues, or fluid fails to augment perfusion. Fluid resuscitation should be followed by vasopressors should IV fluids fail to restore adequate tissue perfusion. The exception is hypovolemic shock where more fluids is preferred. Blood and blood product transfusion should be considered in the appropriate clinical setting. The administration of fluids and vasopressors should not be delayed due to the absence of a central venous catheter. Evidence suggests that the use of peripheral IV vasoactive medications may be used safely for hours to days. However, 
the use of vasopressors in patients with hemorrhagic or hypovolemic shock may indeed be harmful. Vasopressors should only be used as an additional form of hemodynamic support when aggressive resuscitation has failed to restore adequate tissue perfusion or as a last resort for patients in extremis. The optimal initial vasopressor is unknown, as is the optimal target mean arterial pressure. Adrenergic agonists, such as norepinephrine, otherwise known as levofed, is the preferred first-line agent. Phenylephrine, otherwise known as neosinephrine, is not recommended by the Society of Critical Care Medicine for septic shock except in the following circumstances. When norepinephrine is associated with serious arrhythmias, one may choose neosinephrine. When cardiac output is known to be high and blood pressure persistently low, one may choose neosinephrine. A word of caution, phenylephrine may decrease stroke volume leading to a lower cardiac output. Neosinephrine may also be considered for use when the combination of inotrope support, vasopressor, and low-dose vasopressin fail to achieve target mean arterial pressure, and phenylephrine should be used as salvage therapy. Inotropic agents, such as dobutamine, is the most commonly used inotropic agent in patients whom have cardiogenic shock. Dobutamine is often administered concomitantly with norepinephrine to offset the fall in peripheral vascular resistance that occurs with lower doses of dobutamine. Vasopressor support should be titrated according to response, i.e., indices of tissue perfusion, including blood pressure, urine output, mental status, and integumentary color. Laboratory evaluation should be undergone in patients with shock. I suggest obtaining a serum lactate, renal and liver function tests, cardiac enzymes and natriuretic peptides, CBC with platelet and differential, coagulation studies and a D-dimer level, as well as a blood gas analysis, either an arterial blood gas or a venous blood gas. Patients in shock should also undergo imaging studies. The first imaging study of choice should be a chest x-ray. Point-of-care ultrasound is also useful, and the RUSH or Rapid Ultrasound and Shock exam should be performed. One should also consider the FOCUS or Focused Cardiac Ultrasound exam, which only examines the heart. The ACEs or Abdominal and Cardiac Evaluation with Sonography and Shock should also be considered. Multi-organ ultrasonography via the RUSH and ACEs exams should be considered and examine the heart first 
followed by ultrasound of the chest and abdomen, as well as major blood vessels. The astute clinician should consider directed imaging with respect to the potential etiology of shock. An echocardiogram to delineate etiologies of cardiogenic shock, abdominal radiography may reveal intestinal obstruction or intestinal perforation, a CT of the head in traumatic brain injury or if stroke is suspected. A CT of the spine may reveal spinal injury leading to neurogenic and distributive shock. A CT of the chest may reveal pneumonia, a pneumothorax, a ruptured aneurysm, and dissection. A CT of the abdomen and pelvis may reveal intestinal obstruction, intestinal perforation, and abscesses. A CT of the pulmonary arteries may reveal pulmonary embolus, and a nuclear bleeding scan may reveal the source of a GI hemorrhage. In septic shock, the identification and treatment of the underlying problem, which includes source control, is profoundly important. Every attempt should be made to treat the underlying cause of shock. At times, the etiology is clear, such as hemorrhagic shock from a gunshot wound to the abdomen. In other cases, the etiology is less obvious, such as obstructive shock from a massive pulmonary embolism. Once the diagnosis is made, consider the following resuscitation endpoints for patient in extremis. A central venous pressure of 8 to 12 millimeters of mercury, or if mechanically ventilated, 12 to 15 millimeters of mercury. A mean arterial pressure greater than or equal to 65 to 70 millimeters of mercury. Higher targets do not appear to be associated with mortality benefit and may be associated with increased risk of cardiac arrhythmias. Target a urine output of 0.5 ml per kilogram per hour or greater. Target an SCVO2 greater than or equal to 70% or an MVO2 greater than or equal to 65%. Monitor for lactate clearance and, of course, monitor the patient's mental status during sedation vacations. Well, this concludes the podcast episode here, My Grand Rounds on Shock. I truly hope you enjoy what you're listening to. And please, pass the podcast along to your colleagues. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button to stay up to date here at My Grand Rounds. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I'd appreciate you rating and potentially writing a review. Well, folks, till next time, stay safe, continue to do your best for your patients on the various sick wards. Sources for this podcast include the ICU Book, 4th Edition, Harrison's Principles of Internal Medicine, 
19th edition. Textbook of Critical Care, 7th edition. And, of course, my greater than two decades of clinical and didactic experience.